Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All right. Thank you, brothers and sisters. My name is David G., and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic with a sobriety date of August 8th, 1994. I'm also a recovering lustaholic with a sobriety date of October 1st, 2019. I'm grateful to be here today. I'm definitely grateful to be able to come and share just a little bit of my experience, strength, and hope on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's something that I've been studying since uh, day one, coming into Alcoholics Anonymous almost 26 years ago sometime this week. And uh, it's just a great piece of information. For a lot of years, I could not get sober, and, and I tried, and I tried, and I stayed in chronic relapse forever. And it really wasn't until a man took and sat down with me and, and began to show me what the problem was, what the solution was, and the action steps necessary to stay in the solution that I was able to get any kind of sobriety time behind me. However, I did continue to suffer uh, with lust for a long, long time. And uh, last year, after I came to a bottom that, that almost took me and my family to pieces, I was able to come back at that point to S.A., and open up uh, the book and begin to work the steps in, in a way that I hadn't been able to do before. The doctor's opinion was was a key part to this. And uh, I, I want to share my experience, and I just really wanted to make it very clear that I am not an expert on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not an expert of, of uh, anything that has to do with medical, psychiatric, any of that. I'm just someone who has studied the book for a long time and has found a way to recover through the steps. I do believe this to be a, a physical, a mental, and a spiritual illness that we suffer from. Uh, I've tried all kinds of things, but it seems that this is the only thing that has really worked for me through the years. And so without going into a, a big, long, uh, drawn-out part of that, I just want to jump right into the doctor's opinion and go with it. I, I do want to say that anything I say here today, you haven't heard from your sponsor or your sponsor does not agree with, I want you to know that I believe your sponsor is right. I feel that you should listen to your sponsor and what he tells you to do. I know that I would mind. I'm here to share experience, strength, and hope, nothing else. With that being said, let's go to the doctor's opinion. We will start on XXB. We'll start at the beginning today, and we want to look at the doctor's opinion. Now, we know that later on, it became fact, but in these days, it was just his opinion. He said, this is my opinion. This is what I think. We know that some, a little bit of the history behind this, you know, this man suffered in the Great Depression, the same as many other people. He lost everything that he had. He went to work for, in Towns Hospital uh, for a man named Charlie Towns. He went to work there during that time for, I think it was uh, $30 room and board. And uh, he had a history of really loving to work with alcoholics and be with alcoholics. It was said that in his lifetime, he had helped more than 40,000 alcoholics to find recovery. That's amazing. There's a lot of history on this doctor, and I don't care to get into all of that today. I don't. If, if, if you want to look at that, feel free to do that on your own time. You can do that by reading AA Comes of Age. Also pass it on by Bill W., 
Dr. Bob and the good old timers, there's a lot of information or even just Google. You can find the history of this doctor. But I really want to get into the meat of the message. And really what I would like to do is just do it just as it was. It was I was with someone that I was sponsoring. This is how we would do it. We would start at the doctor's opinion and we'd start right here at the front. He says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader, and it took me a minute or two to realize that that was talking to me, the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So it already tells me right there in that first couple of sentences where the plan of recovery is described at. I mean, if I'm going to meetings and looking for that and listen to people share their experience, strength, and hope, I think that's a very good thing. And I think we need to do that. I do. But I also believe that, you know, as he said right there, the plan of recovery described in the book from the medical side of things is coming from right here. He said, convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience, not just knowledge, experience with the suffering of our members. And this is probably one of the first promises on this page, have witnessed our return to health. And we've seen that over and over in our fellowship through the years. We have seen people come in here, grab a hold of this deal, work the steps, do the deal, and return to health. And, and that's really what I'm looking to do in, in my life as well, moving forward for the rest of my life. You know, I want to continue uh, that return to health. So he says, a well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Now, we know in those days you couldn't just go into a clinic or a hospital to 12-step somebody. You just could not do that. You couldn't do what we do today. There was a letter that had to be given by a medical doctor, and this was the doctor that gave Alcoholics Anonymous the letter. He says this, to whom it may concern, and it took me a little while to read in the book, for me to realize that it concerns me. I'm going to be the one reading and personalizing the doctor's opinion so it fits me. So who does it concern? It concerns me. He says, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. And 34, I've attended a patient who, though had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. Now, we know that that was Bill W., from the readings that I've done and studied over the years. It's also been said that you had three opportunities to come into this man's hospital. He would give you the best of medical care that they had in those days. And after some time, he would release you back out into the street. If you came back again and you came back again after the third time, he sent you to a clinic upstate New York, which was for wet brains. In fact, Bill will talk about it in his story. Uh, that he was to the point to where he was not coming back. So when the doctor writes that in his last couple of sentences we read, that's what he's referring to. He was an alcoholic of a type who I had come to regard as hopeless. So in other words, Bill was on his way out when the spiritual experiences, flash of light, whatever you want to call it, happened to him. So he says, uh, as part of his rehabilitation, and I always want to remember that, it's only part of, of the recovery program to carry this message. I think a lot of times whenever we talk about step 12, we talk about the different things in our fellowship. We talk about it as helping someone else, as helping someone else. But as the doctor talks about right here in that sentence, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics. It's only a part. It's not the whole piece. But he's impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. And look at this promise. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered, not recovering. They have recovered from a hopeless state of mind. So with that being said, let's go over to Roman numeral 26. 
which will be the next page. And we're going to start right there at, at the very first full paragraph where it says the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement, which follows. Now, in this statement, he confirms what we, you and I, and many, many others throughout our fellowship who have suffered alcoholic torture and in a lot of our cases, sexaholic torture must believe. They say there are no musts in, in the program of, of AA, the program of SA. I've heard that in several meetings I went to. My book just threw one out right there. This is something I must believe. There are no if or ands. I must believe this. That the body of the alcoholic, and in my case as well, the sexaholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Now, I don't need to read a book and I don't need to talk to a doctor to realize that there's something going on in my mind that just isn't right. I mean, I'm pretty satisfied with that information a long time before I ever get here. Mentally, I know that something is wrong. But look at that statement he makes. And this is something he says I must believe, that my body is quite as abnormal as my mind. Now, that's a very key piece of information here. I'd never seen that up to this point. You're telling me my body is sick as my mind. That's hard for me to believe. It really is. But let's read on and see what he says. He said it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking. And in my case, my lusting, it did not uh, satisfy me to be told that I couldn't control that because there were many times I felt I was in control of that, but I fell out of control with it pretty quick. He says this, just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, I'm sure many of us can identify with what he's talking about. here. We were outright mental defectives. He says, these things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But this next word changes the whole statement of that paragraph. He says, but, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. And if I'm not sure of that, if the person I'm working with is not sure of that, there's really no point in us moving forward in this book. Because if we're here only to deal with the mental, then we're leaving out a key piece of information. Look at the very next uh, sentence. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic, and in my case, the sexaholic, which leaves out this physical factor, is incomplete. In other words, my recovery is incomplete if I don't apply the physical part of this as well as the mental. And I never knew that. I never knew that. He says, the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. For me, that's a question. Does that interest me? Does that really interest me that there's something as sick in my body as there is in my mind? Well, of course it interests me. I want to understand what that is. I want to know what that is. Because up until that point, I, I didn't know. He said, as layman, our opinion as to his soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, or in my case, ex-problem lusters, there's a promise right there. We can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we could not otherwise account. Now, my experience as far as with alcohol and drugs and the other things that I did for all of those years. Anytime that I would be on a run, I would be on a binge and I would stop and I would come in and I would try to get recovery. And my mind would fight me, it would fight me, and it would fight me until I would finally give in. And I'd just want to drink one or two to take the edge off. It was set up, what the doctor's going to call a phenomenon of craving on the inside of me, that absolutely my mind had nothing to say about it anymore once I put it into my body. Now, I've been sober close to 26 years this week in AA. And I could sit here in front of you today, right now, 
and put my hands in a bowl of whiskey or liquor of any kind. I could wash it. I could wash my arms. I could do whatever I wanted to do with that liquor, and it would not hurt me at all. But I promise you, if I put it into my mouth and I swallow it down inside of my body, there's something that's going to happen to me that doesn't happen to the average person that does not have this phenomenon of craving, this allergy within their body. It's going to set something off and my mind can say, hey, we're going to go to the bar and have a couple of beers and I can be in there for all day long. And it doesn't matter. The mind says we need to go. We need to go with well, the body. The body is not full. We're not going anywhere. This allergy is in full effect. Well, that's great information. But how does that apply to me in essay? Once I come back to essay and I really started looking at this. Now, there's been some confusion over this in my mind. Trust me, because I've had to take a real close look at this. I've had to stay open minded about it. And I've had to really sit in prayer and talk with other people. Now, I do not believe that every time I get hit by a lust storm or something like that, I trigger the allergy. I don't believe that. Now, this is my experience, not yours. If you don't agree with this, that's okay. But as I read this more carefully, it's going to explain why I come to believe that way. Now, I do believe that if I start toying around with that idea, if I'm tempted and I get on the internet, and I do anything physical outside of the thought, I believe that I trigger that phenomenon of craving, which demands more of the same. And I feel that those two things running together, the obsession to the mind, the allergy within the body, I have no choice but to, but to act out again and again and again. That's been my experience. So in fit spiritual condition through these steps, I would never choose to act out. I just never would. If I'm not in fit spiritual spiritual condition and I'm unfit I don't really have any choice but to act out because this obsession this allergy is going to continue to beat me up over and over and over so let's drop to the uh, bottom paragraph on Roman numeral 26 though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged a lot of years in AA, there would be a newcomer come in, and at times he'd still have alcohol on his breath. I would pick him up, try to run him through the steps. I'd get him there just a little ways, and he'd relapse over and over and over and over. I got very frustrated with this until one day I was studying this, and right there kind of explains what I shouldn't be doing. It says, uh, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he's approached with this message. And I kind of believe that with our sexaholic problem, too, because then he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. What do we have to offer? We have to offer the program of recovery as outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the doctor knew this way back then, way back. And so this is nothing new. So with all of that being said, on Roman numeral page uh, 27, XXVII, let's drop to the very last sentence on that page. And let's pick the reading up right there. He says, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor and for many of us lust. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that this action of alcohol or for me, the action of lust on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Now, how does it manifest itself? My mentor, Charlie, used to say all the time, if you eat strawberries, you break out in a rash, that's the manifestation of that allergy. If you drink milk and you're lactose intolerant and you break out in a case of dysentery, he'd always say, 
you'd say that's the manifestation of that. So for me, what happens is what he's going to what he's going to talk about here uh, in the next sentence or so. In other words, this is how the phenomenon of craving is going to manifest itself with me. It's going to set up what he says in that next sentence, that the phenomenon of craving. In other words, I'm going to crave more and more and more and more and more. It's limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker or in my case, luster. And so when I look at that sentence real close, if it never occurs in them and it has ever occurred in me, even one time, physically, that makes me different. Not everybody has the physical allergy. Not everybody suffers from the phenomenon of craving. I was married to a woman one time, and we could go to the store. We could get a six-pack of beer. We could drink three beers apiece, and it may be three to six months before she would ever drink any more beer. It would be three to six months before I quit drinking beer and everything else I could get my hands on. Why is that? Because once she put it in her body, it did not do the same thing it does to me whenever I put it into my body. Once I swallow it in put it in my mouth, swallow it down into my body, it produces a physical craving, which demands more of the same. So whenever I'm going away from alcohol, when I'm going away from acting out for a long period of time, and my mind begins to beat me, and I begin to think I'm craving and craving and craving, I'm not. The book says I am obsessing. I am not craving until I put it into my body. And then once we look at that with our sexaholism, it makes a lot of sense as well. And we're going to see that in the next couple of pages that we're going to read. So I'd like to pick up right where we left off, where it says these allergic type can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. In other words, there's certain things that I've had to watch out for in the very beginning through the years. Listerine was a big one. It, it has alcohol in it. Cologne, different things that I, that I used to uh, strain and drink. And, uh, you know, whenever I was at my worst, but also with lust if i look at it like this in my experience these allergic types can never safely use lust in any form at all it doesn't say we can't do it but it does say that we can't safely ever do it again we may not have acted out for the last time ever i hope we have but i promise you it's the last time we're ever going to enjoy it once we come here and get a piece of this program or that's been my experience anyway Next sentence picking up, he says, once formed, having formed the habit, found we cannot break it. Once we've lost our self-confidence, our reliance upon things human, our problems fall up on them and they become astonishingly difficult to solve. Now, I don't know if that's been your experience, but I can most definitely tell you in the illness and the sickness that has been mine. Let's drop to the bottom paragraph of that page. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Now, I didn't agree with that. When I read that sentence, I said, that's not true. I told my sponsor, I said, I like the taste of bourbon whiskey, and I love it, and I drank it. I also like the taste of, of cold beer, and I drank it. And he said, that's true, but I noticed you're drinking a cup of coffee. And I said, yes, sir. He said, do you drink 30 cups of that every time that you sit down? I said, no. He said, I see that you drank tea once in a while. Do you drink a gallon of tea every time you sit down? I said, no. Do you do that with alcohol? <laughs> yeah, I do. He said, you do not drink only for the effect. I mean, the taste. You drink for the effect. And for the first time, the light came on. I seen this when I came to essay this time, too. 
I do not like just because, you know, I, I, I like the feeling or any of that. It goes further than that for me. It's about a effect produced. There is just something about that that has the stronghold on me. In fact, the next sentence says, the sensation is so elusive that while we admit it's dangerous, and I know that by acting out and doing the things that I do, I know by drinking and doing the things that I do, it's dangerous. I know that. But after a time, I cannot differentiate the truth from the false. The people in my family, the people around me in my meetings, they could all see the truth about me for a long, long time. But I was not convinced of that until I bottomed out. Now, I think this next sentence is something that you and I is probably going to have to look at for the rest of our lives. This is what happens to us prior to acting out, prior to taking a drink, prior to whatever that problem may be. This is what's always going to be there first. We're restless. Physically, I'm restless. I'm irritable. Mentally, I'm irritable. I'm discontented. Spiritually, I'm discontent. Look at it. Physical, mental, spiritual, physical, mental, spiritual, restless, irritable, discontent. I'm mad. I got a resentment. I'm full of fear. I don't feel very good. I'm, I'm, I'm on to everybody. I just don't feel content at all. The only way that I'm going to feel content, and most people can understand this, is unless I can again experience the sense and ease and comfort which comes by taking a few drinks or, in my other condition, lust hits. Drinks, which I see others taking with impunity. Now, this is what's going on prior to me taking a drink, prior to me acting out. But look at this sentence. After I succumb to the desire again, I go ahead and give in. Mentally, I'm tired of fighting it. I'm irritable. I'm restless. I'm discontent. I give up. I buy into the lie. This time I can do it again. And I do it. I go ahead and I succumb to the desire again. Look at the book. As so many do. Then. That phenomenon of craving develops, not before. So that's why it's hard for me to believe that every time that lust hits me, that I trigger the allergy. I just can't believe that, according to these sentences right here. After I succumb to the desire again, after I go ahead and give in to that thought, I click on the Internet. I send that text message. I do whatever it is I do. I, I use the phone to call up an escort. Whatever it is that I do, then I have triggered that phenomenon of craving. Look at what he says here. At that point, we pass through the well-known stages of a spree. I bet you many on this call could relate to that today. Emerging remorseful. You ever do that stuff and emerging remorseful? Saying this right here, what he says in this sentence, with a firm resolution not to do it again. Uh, I'm not going to do it again. Well, this is repeated over and over. And unless this person, David, can experience an entire psychic change, there's going to be very little hope for my recovery. In other words, I'm going to be trapped in between these two from now on. There's going to be very little hope for my recovery. I may gain some sobriety time here and there. Recovery is going to be far away. <clears throat> but look at the great news. <laughs> That's the bad news. Here's some good news. Now, on the other hand, and as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once the psychic change has occurred, spiritual experience, whatever you want to call it, once this has occurred as a result of us working these steps, the very same person, David, who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he ever despaired of solving them. I'm acting out all the time. I'm drinking myself to death. Look at what this sentence says, this promise. Suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. 
I mean, it's just a few days prior to this in my experience that I'm dying from alcoholism. I'm dying. I'm drowning from sexaholism. And he says right here, if I do this, I'm easily able to control my desire for it. But there is the condition. And here it is. The only effort necessary, that being required to follow a few simple rules. In other words, the rest of the 12 steps. So if I stop right here, I try to get sober based on this information alone. It has been my experience that I relapse over and over and over and over. Bottom paragraph of that page, please. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism, and in my case, lustaholism, is entirely a problem of mental control. So if I come in here and I'm only focusing on fixing the mental and I'm leaving the physical out, the doctor says that this information is going to be incomplete, therefore so is my recovery. He says, I have had many men who had, for an example, worked a period of uh, months on some problem or business deal which would be settled on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink. They didn't take a bunch of drinks. They didn't stay drunk for a day or two. They didn't lust for a day or two. They took a drink a day or so prior to the day. And once they put the alcohol in their body, the same way we do with the lust, look at what happened. Then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests. Not before, after we put the alcohol in our body, we put the lust in our body. Whatever it is, the, the mind takes over. Anything physical I do outside of the thought with lust, for me, it triggers the allergy. He says, so that the important appointment was not met. Uh, Roman numeral page 30, XXX. These men were not drinking to escape. These men were not lusting to escape. These men were drinking, or in my case, these men were lusting, to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Nothing more. Now, there are many situations which arise out of this phenomenon of craving which caused men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. I don't continue to fight for my sobriety at some point in it. I'm going to make the supreme sacrifice. I didn't know what that meant for many years until somebody pointed out this disease takes over to the point to where we end up killing ourselves or somebody. I, I worked with a young man for a lot of years, about four years. He's just the, my favorite person in the world. I just love this guy. And he gets sober for a little while. He'd buy into the lie. He'd take a drink, trigger the allergy, and it was just on and on and on and on. One day, he, he couldn't continue to fight anymore. He made the supreme sacrifice. We found him a year ago, hung in his closet. And uh, what a devastating blow that has been, you know, to his family. And it's impacted everybody around him. The disease killed him. He made the supreme sacrifice rather than to continue to fight. Now, this page this next paragraph or so we're going to look at five different types of alcoholics and we want to personalize these and we want to take a look at them for ourselves now if i just read this out of the book i think man that, that all sounds good you know no i want to see how this applies to me i want to look at it with my sexaholism addiction too i really want to take a close look at this to see so let's start where he says the cl classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside of the scope of this book. Now, anytime we see on this page where he says the type, that's going to explain another type. We're going to look at five different types. So let's take a look at the first one. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. Now, I never considered myself to be a psychopath. Now, my family has considered that many times, and so has a lot of the people that I've known in my life. 
you get me drunk and full of drugs and lusting and acting out and I'm a crazy individual. I have shot people with gun. I mean, I've done insane things. I really have. But when I look at the way he describes a psychopath, he says they are emotionally unstable. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been emotionally unstable, but if that's the doctor's definition of what a psychopath is, that applies to me right now. <laughs> I mean, thank God, you know, for recovery. He says we're all familiar with this type. Let's see if we can identify what he's going to say right here. They're always going on the wagon for keeps. You ever change your sobriety up over and over and over and say, hey, I promise this time it's for keeps. I mean it. I mean it. And I really meant it. I just didn't understand what I was dealing with here. He says they are over remorseful. You ever act out, fall off of your sobriety and act over remorseful? Make many resolutions, but never a decision. How about that? If you can identify with any one of those, then the doctor says that we're a psychopath. Wow. What a statement. Type number two, there is a type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. What about the man that cannot, the man that is unwilling to admit that lust really isn't going to bother me? I mean, I, you know, I've had a little trouble with that, but I think I'm on the other side of that now. In other words, I'm unwilling to admit that I cannot take a drink. I plan various ways of drinking. And in my experience, I plan various ways of lusting. It's a plan. It's premeditated. It's there. Look at this one. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. Here's the third type. There is the type who always believes that being after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. What about us that suffer from sexaholism, from lust? Do I, do I believe after being entirely free for a period of time, that I can go back and do that one more time without danger. I promise you, my experience shows that I have done that in my past over and over and over. So I really want to pay close attention to what he's talking about here. There is a manic depressive type. Anybody ever been very depressed over their condition and the way it unfolds? I know I have. He said he's perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Type number five. Then there are types, entirely normal in every respect, except the effect alcohol has upon them. Now, I used to try to identify with this type. My wife uh, straightened me out on that pretty quick. She said, you know, if that was the case, you wouldn't be as crazy as you've been through the last 25 years, 26 years almost. But he says they're often able, intelligent, and friendly people. And I see that with a lot of guys I work with. Intelligent, they're friendly. But none of that matters. It really doesn't. Because this disease doesn't care what color you are. It doesn't care how much education you have. It doesn't matter if you're from Yale or if you're from jail. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, it has us. But look at what, what he says right here. It's probably one of the most important statements in the book for me. All of these and many others have one symptom in common. In other words, you and I that are on this call today and millions of our brothers and sisters throughout the recovery world, we have one symptom in common, not two, not three, one. Well, he's already told us it's not mental. My mentor, Charlie, used to always say, God forbid, everybody in the meeting hall tonight, take a drink of alcohol and get drunk. We're all going to react differently. 
He said one is going to cry in their beer. One is going to want to fight. One is going to want to make love. One is going to mentally, we're all going to have a different reaction to that alcohol. But look what the doctor writes. We cannot start. And see, that's because of that allergy. We cannot start drinking, lusting, whatever it is. We cannot start. Now, if a lust storm hits me, that's different. I, you know, I'm going to have to get on my knees, pray, whatever I got to do to get out from under that storm. But if I start, if I start, look what he says. If I start drinking, I cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. It happens after I put it in. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. In other words, I've got to be free. I've got to stay away. Bottom paragraph, this immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. In other words, I'm like BS. That's not true. That can't be true. There's no way. There has to be something else, not entire abstinence. But there comes a day that I'm absolutely going to agree that entire abstinence is the only way, followed up with a program of recovery. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics, and in my case, lustaholics, are doomed. Well, we know today that that's their opinion. We know it's not fact. Many of us are sober today, and we're a miracle, and it proves otherwise. Roman numeral 31, top of the page. If that's what's the matter with me, let's pray to God there's a solution. The doctor says there is. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best understand this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man had been brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological and mental deterioration. This guy was dying. He was mentally deteriorating. He had lost everything worthwhile. I'm sure some of us can relate to that because of our addiction. And was living, one might say, drink. Now, he frankly believed and admitted for him there was no hope. But following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. If you go back up to the top of the page and you look at those four words, what is the solution? The next sentence where we left off is going to answer what the solution is. He accepted the plan outlined in this book, period. If I will accept the plan outlined in this book, I will couple it with the fellowship of Alcoholics and Sexaholics Anonymous. I will learn to reach out to other brothers, and I will do what's required of me to recover here. That solution is very, very real. We do recover. Well, as a result of that man doing this, let's look what happened. A year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck. That's kind of where we're at when we get here with the first step, usually. That's the kind of condition I know I was in. But as a result of doing this work, look what happened to him. He emerged, a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself that I'd known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left. A long time has passed no return to alcohol. What a promise. And I've always been told that this was the man who wrote chapter 10 
Hank P. And so if you read chapter 10 and you look at that, this is the man that he's talking about right here. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, he had hid out in a deserted barn and determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition. And that's usually how we are when we get here. We're in desperate condition. And if we're not, then we're probably not done. But in other words, this man was in desperate condition and brought to me. He said, following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Now, I thought that many times coming back into the fellowship after relapse. This is a waste of time. It's not going to work. I've tried it over and over and over. Unless he, he said I could assure him as no one ever had in the future, he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And I think that's where he was hung up. If you and I believe that we're going to come in here and somehow have the willpower to, to resist the impulse to lust or to act out or to drink or to drug or whatever it is in the future, uh, it's been my experience. That's not going to happen. The Dr. Wrightson's alcoholic problem was so complex. His depression so great, man, I can relate to this. As we felt his only hope would have been through them, what we call moral psychology, and we doubted even if that would have any effect. But look at the great promise here, and this is the same as it is for you and I today. However, he did become sold, and I love that word, until I became sold on what he says right here, the ideas contained in this book, not the ideas contained in the fellowship, or the opinion of other people, as good as that is, and as much as that helps me, I cannot become sold on that. No human power can relieve me. I've tried over and over and over. But however, whenever I did become sold on the ideas contained in the book, look at this great promise. He has not had a drink for a great many years. You know, it's been almost a year now in Sexaholics Anonymous, and I can, it's just like a freedom has come over me that I could never uh, before have had. It came over me all those years ago whenever it came to alcohol and drugs. By the grace of God, I never returned to that life again. I never have. He says, I see him now and then. He's the finest specimen in manhood as one could wish to meet. I think this is the key to it all. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book. We could probably stop right there. Read this book through and through. Perhaps it came to scope. He may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. Thank you very much for allowing me to share experience, strength, and hope. Again, if your sponsor says anything different than that, your sponsor is right, not me. My experience is from the book, and that's what I shared. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.